Welcome to Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. This week, I'm joined by Fred Nastos, co-head of Core Fic Trading. This week's episode is titled, Thank You, Sir, May I Have More Stimulus. I'm Ben Reitzis, and welcome to Views from the North. Each episode, I will be joined by members of BMO's FIC Sales and Trading Desk to bring you perspectives on the Canadian rates market and the macro economy. We strive to keep this show as interactive as possible by responding directly to questions submitted by our listeners and clients. We value your feedback, so please don't hesitate to reach out with any topics you'd like to hear about. I can be found on Bloomberg or via email at benjamin.writesis at bmo.com. That's benjamin.reitzes at bmo.com. Your input is valued and greatly appreciated. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Thanks for joining me today, Fred, even though you're on your week off. Fortunately, talking macro and rates with me is one of your favorite things to do, so I'm sure you have a big smile on your face right now. Thanks for having me on again. So I guess next week we have two important events in Canada with the uh, federal budget on the 19th and the uh, Bank of Canada on the 21st. So I was hoping to slightly turn the tables on you and get your view on what you expect from the budget before talking about the BOC. Sure thing. That sounds like a great idea. I love being peppered with questions. That is my job after all. That's great to hear, Ben. So what do you think the big takeaways or what are you going to be looking for in the budget next week? I think there's a few things that that we'll be looking out for. The appetite of the government to spend given the current macro backdrop is, is probably the biggest question mark. In their fall economic statement, they laid out after what's expected to be a massive deficit for this past fiscal year, just over $380 billion. They also they also put forward that they're going to spend between 70 and $100 billion in stimulus over the next three years. That money was, was unallocated. It was just kind of general stimulus on whatever tickles their fancy. At this point, though, the pace of recovery has been far better than pretty much anybody expected, and, and the economy is going to grow at a, a much better than expected pace for 2021. There's a pretty big question as to whether that 70 to $100 billion over three years is even necessary. And if it is, maybe not that that size. So perhaps, I guess, I guess the question is, is how small do they start for this year? Uh, are they still committed to that 70 to 100? Or, or maybe those numbers come down a little bit. Beyond that, I, I think there's a number of different policy aspects we can discuss if you'd like. Yeah. I mean, to me, that 70 billion, it really comes down to how it gets spent, right? You know, is it wise, timely investments, you know, infrastructure, or do they have a worse payoff structure? Um. (laughs) (laughs) To put it kindly, I think so what they what they did say at the time was that they don't want to create any permanent spending. I mean, sticking to that commitment, though, has tended to be pretty tough. And they already have pretty much leaked that they're going to do something on childcare, which sounds pretty permanent to me. So it's tough to say I'm I'm, would love to see more infrastructure spending, given the the poor state of infrastructure where where we live in Toronto. But we'll see. And it's been notoriously difficult to get that money out the door also on infrastructure. If you recall, when the the liberal government first came in 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 2015, that was their platform. And it took years for them to really push that stimulus spending out at the time. And so I'm not sure why this time would be any different than then. But I guess we'll we'll see. So the childcare aspect is interesting and clearly really important. Would that supplant like provincial programs that are in place? I don't know. I mean, that's a great question. So I think a lot of this is modeled on the fact that Quebec has a higher labor force participation rate for women uh, because they have affordable childcare that most other provinces don't have, especially, uh, I think Ontario is probably a pretty big target there. So I, I mean, it's likely intended. I don't think it's to supplant it, but supplement whatever's already there. 
I don't think the feds are going to come in and replace Quebec's system, but they maybe they'll they'll start paying for some of it instead of the province footing the entire bill. But the intention is to get women back in the labor force, improve that participation rate a little bit more, which then leads to stronger long-term potential growth for the economy. And, and that's a benefit for, for, for the country. Of course, which is one of the reasons to put the programs forward. I guess we'll also be looking to see what COVID-19 support measures are continued. Yeah, there's going to be plenty of those. I mean, they're kind of change in the I program, the, the Canada recovery benefit. I mean, that's going to go probably through, a, I would guess, at least the rest of this calendar year or something close to it. And the question then is whether they revert back to old EI rules or they make EI more generous, kind of in line with what with the changes to the CRB. Uh, and that I think that that's an open question at this point. I, I suspect they probably won't answer that at the budget. I, I don't see the benefit for them doing that. The wage subsidy will probably continue as well. I mean, we're in the middle of the third wave here. So uh, whatever's still in place likely is not going away and, and will no doubt be extended at least through the summer. I guess another focus of the budget will be on their climate-related taxes or initiatives there. What do you think is the base case on that front? Well, they already have their carbon pricing blueprint uh, intact and out there and uh, escalating over the coming years. So I don't think it'll be uh, taxes from that perspective because that's that's already in place. It would probably more along the lines of incentives for green investments or something along those lines to help push the economy toward or to help push the, the, the business sector toward a, a greener future. What that entails, I think actually you would probably know better than me. I probably don't actually, but um, <laughs> I, uh, I guess I'm expecting to see some sort of like corporate tax cuts for businesses, you know, that are that are working towards like you know, a green economy or a low emissions or zero emissions economy. Yeah, I'd be curious to see if they can ever go through with some sort of green bond tax exemption you know, or green bond tax exemption on the interest. That was circulated a couple of years ago, and that had an interesting market effect where green bonds really caught a bid for a few weeks going into, I think, the 2019 budget, if I remember correctly. But there was no, um, they didn't sort of come through with anything then. But I know that in the 2020 Finance Committee report, I think that was a recommended measure. I think that's exactly the type of thing that they could do. At this point, the focus will still be on COVID and the recovery from where we are now, the continued recovery. But I think a lot of green type initiatives should be expected. Another area that everyone's going to focus on uh, with the budget are any measures on housing. Yeah, I mean, we've already had Aussie come out and and they uh, proposed raising the stress test rate to five and a quarter or two percentage points above whatever the contract rate is on a mortgage. And that would be effective June 1. We heard from Finance Minister Freeland that the government probably wants to wait and see what the impact of that Aussie measure is before they do anything else. But I think that's that's domestically they're willing to wait. I think that there's still a decent chance that we get tighter measures on foreign buyers. They really try to clamp down a little bit more on that at this point, just in an effort to, to cool housing as, as much as they can and really support affordability for Canadians. How would that play out? I mean, there's a lot of different ways to do that. Just a question of how, how restrictive they want to be. I mean, that, that's really what it comes down to and what place foreign capital has in the Canadian housing market. And I mean, you could make an argument that given the way the housing market's gone for the past 20 years, pretty much after being dead through the 90s, it, it's been on fire for most of the past 20 years, 15 at least. And we probably don't need foreign capital right now. If that's the conclusion that they come to, then you could see something pretty punitive there. I mean, just to ensure that you don't have foreigners parking money here and those houses staying empty. What you want is supply to be fully available to everybody just to ensure that everybody can have a place they need to live that's affordable. 
Right. And so I think the recommendation there is something like a tax on vacant uh, residential properties. That one's difficult, though. So like, how do you know if a property is vacant? How is the federal government going to keep track of that? Things like that are, are, I think, are pretty challenging. I think a tax of some kind on foreign buyers when they come in, when they go out, something like that is certainly on the table, I think. And, and you could make it as punitive as you want, depending on how badly you don't want that money. Moving from housing, like, do you see any potential for uh, increased taxes to help pay for COVID here, like a, a sales tax or luxury taxes or anything like that? I think it's far too early to be talking about tax hikes. Uh, they, they still want to see the economy recover, and the way to do that is not raising taxes. And I think the way that they've approached, the government's approached the deficit and the way it's been spoken about and, and their willingness to spend with, with a lesser concern on long-term finances and, and dropping their fiscal anchor, creating fiscal guardrails that give them a lot more flexibility on, on how much they can and are willing to spend. When you look at that all together, there's really no good rationale for raising taxes from that perspective. Like if deficits don't matter, then why would you want to raise taxes to lower the deficit, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And to that point, I think the you know we've we've seen this over the past year or so, where the narrative on the debt and the deficit has really come down to servicing costs, you know, rather than a focus on the outstanding debt or deficit as a ratio of GDP. Yeah, and that's been a theme, and and probably will be globally going forward until we see a big increase in interest rates. But that's the risk. I mean, rates have been falling for forty years. I mean, I guess they, that could definitely continue. I, I don't think it will personally, but I mean, that I, I wouldn't rule that out by any means. Or rates can just stay low where they are now. And if that's the case, then you can carry a higher debt burden uh, and, and it's not a huge problem. And you can use that ratio. You can use debt service ratios as, as your guideline. But if you get a big backup in interest rates, if, if 30-year bond yields rise to three three and a half four percent 4% or more, who knows if, if you get kind of an unexpected event, then that's going to be a challenge from a fiscal sustainability perspective. And so it works for now and until it doesn't. And then, and then what happens? And then you're faced with some really difficult choices. On the topic of the deficit then, I think we're projecting to see something like a deficit of $175 billion for next year. Something in that neighborhood. I think 150 to 175 it, Again, it, it's going to come back to how much of that 70 to $100 billion they want to spend this year, if they're spending it at all, and how conservative they want to be with respect to forecasting around COVID, because if the third wave lasts longer than expected, that would mean the support programs need that much more money, which would make the deficit that much bigger. It's about two hundred billion less than last year, but still about a uh, hundred and you know, maybe one hundred and fifty billion above twenty nineteen levels. Yeah, that sounds about right. Big numbers. How do you think the issuance will play out uh, to, to finance this deficit? Well, I think if we assume that that the T bill stock stays relatively unchanged. That sets up issuance of about kind of two fifty to two seventy five billion for the coming year. There's about one hundred and five billion in maturities. That's how you get to that number with a one fifty to one seventy five billion dollar deficit. Again, big numbers and more or less unprecedented. I mean, last year at three hundred and seventy four billion, that's a huge number. So issuance will probably fall about a hundred billion or so. Uh, but luckily, the, the, I mean, the Bank of Canada is there sitting on the sidelines and, and gobbling up debt one week after the next. And so from that perspective, I think that there's a pretty good cushion for the government in there. Right, right. So that actually takes us to next Wednesday's event, which is the Bank of Canada statement, where we're actually expecting to hear them cut their purchases by about a billion a week. Yeah, that's. That, I think that's the broad market consensus at this point that, I mean, we, we've been there for a while looking for a, a one billion cut. They're currently buying... Four billion in government of Canada bonds per week. They expected to cut that down to three billion, and since that's consensus at this point, it's hard to think it'll have that much impact. I think 
the tone around that does matter a little bit in that where they cut their purchases from. So I think most are expecting uh, the bulk of the cuts to come in the two and five year sectors, which is where it has to come because they're not buying enough tens and longs to cut that much. I think that the narrative around that can be they if they choose to, they can extend their duration a little bit as well. And they can say, well, we're still kind of providing as much stimulus as possible, but do, I mean, it, it's really due to the fact that issuance is going to fall by hundred billion. They can't keep buying at 4 billion per week. They, they need to cut that down. And so they, they can cite kind of that technical factor as, as some extent forcing them to cut their QE purchases a little bit, just because they don't want to have too large a footprint in the market. The problem I see though, is if they extend their the maturities of their purchases, they've already bought so many of the longer issues. Canada's debt is very focused on the shorter end. Although the issuance was termed out a little bit, dropping the issuance by $100 billion is not going to provide a lot of long-term debt for Bank Canada to buy. No, it doesn't. I think that that's exactly right. And that is, I mean, clearly an issue. They're, they're buying what, $450 million of long bonds per week. Over the course of a year, that's just over $23.5 billion or so. And if you assume the share of issuance stays the same per maturity bucket, so like last year, for example, longs were 8.6% of total issuance, $32 billion. If you assume that stays the same and you use a $275 billion issuance profile, that would mean the bank can is buying all the long bonds in Canada uh, that get issued pretty much. And then that, that's, that's a problem. I'm not convinced that they want to necessarily do that, especially when they're not going to be buying all the new issues, then they already own huge chunks of the off the run. So I take your point. I think it's probably more likely that they take a little bit off of every single sector. They take most of their, their cuts comes in twos and fives, and they take a little bit off the top in tens and a little bit off the top in longs, just to spread things out a little bit. Not not huge amounts, but they do still bring them down. Right. So the Bank of Canada could cut the total amount of purchases across the curve, but cut the, the shorter terms by more you know, thus extending the maturity of their purchases. Yeah, exactly. So like the, the DVO one would still go down. They're still reducing purchases across the curve, but it wouldn't be as impactful as if they had sharper cuts in the 10 and long buckets. Uh, so that, I mean, they're, they're still providing that stimulus. So if you take for fiscal year 2021, that just ended on March 31st, net issuance was about kind of negative 15 to negative 20 billion. That's bonds kind of going to the public. For the coming year, it'll probably be around zero using the QE profile that I have and $275 billion in, uh, in issuance. There are more bonds available to the public than there, there were last year, but it's still not as if the market's getting flooded at this point. So I, I, it should be easily absorbed. Their lower QE purchases shouldn't have that big of an impact. In terms of trading around the Bank of Canada, though, are there any uh, any trades to go to you here in terms of either going into it or, or coming out of Wednesday's meeting? I think there's a couple things to think about. And so... The biggest question going into this is when they expect the output gap to close. And that, that's been in 2023, and that's been the driver behind their commitment to hold rates at 25 basis points into 2023. Uh, and, and the question is whether that changes. I mean, we're going to have huge upgrades to the growth profile, huge. They were way off on Q1. They had a negative two and a half in January. And at the time, things didn't look great, and we didn't know that January was actually a pretty decent month. But that looks like Q1 looks like it's going to be plus 6% or so something in that neighborhood. And so you're going to get a huge increase to 2021 growth, even if Q2 will probably be on the soft side because of COVID. And so you get these big increases. So in, in, in theory, that pulls the output gap closing forward, probably into 2022. But at the same time, every April, they actually reevaluate potential growth. And so they can do that in such a way that actually pushes the closing of the output gap further back 
pushes it back into 2023 if they choose to. So it's, it's a question of kind of what message the bank wants to send. At this point, I lean toward them keeping the output gap in 2023. I'm going to preserve my right to change my opinion on that over the next few days or so. But that that's definitely where I lean. And we're in the, again, we're in the middle of the third wave and, and the uncertainty around that suggests they'll want to stay on the conservative side of the spectrum. I mean, trades going into this, Canada still looks cheap on a relative basis compared to really most other markets with a, a pretty aggressive Bank of Canada rate hike profile priced through 2022 and 2023. Um, so I, I think going into this, I, I would lean toward being long, but uh, at the same time, I'm a little bit reluctant uh, given the fact that they are tapering. And last time they tapered, even if it was technical in October, you had a knee-jerk sell-off right across the curve. That was, that was pretty notable. My kind of bigger thought is I think you do want to be buying Canada across market on weakness though. And for the purpose of, of just looking ahead a few more weeks, you go to the, the April employment reports that'll be out in early May. And Canada's probably going to be down a few hundred thousand jobs and the U.S. could be up over a million jobs. And that divergence is something you pretty much never see. And so uh, I think going into that, you probably want to be long Canada. And so any weakness you get kind of over the next, I don't know, two weeks or so, you get long Canada. Maybe maybe the Bank of Canada cutting their QE and, and the knee jerk on the back of that provides that opportunity to get long. Right. Okay. So, so I think what you're saying here is simply that with this third wave happening and the lockdowns that just got implemented in Ontario, the bank Canada wants to be a bit cautious. And so we shouldn't look to see the, the output gap sort of get moved forward at all. Yeah. And in terms of trades, that seems to be sort of the consensus view that Canada is a bit cheap, sort of five years and shorter on the curve. It is interesting because except for that backup in late February, you know, Canada on a cross market basis versus the US is still historically very cheap here. Yeah. The, the issue is we've been cheaper in the near like recent past. And so even though historically we look cheap, I think that the market is still looking at the Bank of Canada being more aggressive than the Fed at the end of the day, because the, the Fed's got average inflation targeting and the Bank of Canada doesn't. That brings a lot of people to the conclusion that the Bank of Canada is going to be moving first. To some extent, I, I agree that that's, that's certainly possible. And I, I can very much see that. But the Bank of Canada is not going to want to give that up at this point. I mean, they're going to play up that uncertainty angle again. That's something they have been very focused on and will continue to be very focused on because as much as I think, like just because I think that the vaccines mean Canada will be a lot more open kind of through the summer months. And I think most of us should be vaccinated by the end of June just because I think that doesn't mean I'm going to be right. Like there's there are uncertainties there. The variants could be a bigger issue than I think they will be. And so the Bank of Canada can't just lean on while well, they think the vaccines will work. They need to wait until they do work. And then they can change their mind. Rate hikes eventually are so far away that there's a lot of time for the bank to make a U-turn between now and then and change their view. And, and now seems probably a little bit premature uh, to be making that turn. In summary, what you're saying is that there's still a lot of uncertainty out there and the bank will lean on that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And as long as that uncertainty about the downside risk is still there, they'll want to stay as cautious as possible. So I guess, Fred, thanks for asking me all those questions. Thanks for being the host this week. Effectively, you, you, you take my job. If I'm not careful, I'll, you'll, you'll be the new host of, of uh, Views from the North. Any other questions on the bank or on, uh, on, on the budget before we conclude? On a, on a trade like Canada-US cross-market here and say in fives or shorter even, where do you think a good entry point is? Uh, I think it, right now it's, it's pretty tough. Just, just looking at my screen, it's about nine basis points or so. Canada's back of the U.S. I'm not overly enthusiastic at this level. I think if you could get into kind of the, the mid-teens, like 
not maybe maybe 15 basis points if we can get there. I'm, I'm not convinced we'll actually get there, but something close to that I think is, is a much more favorable entry. We've been consistently cheap here, and so that's why I'm not really excited to get get into these levels. Uh, we've seen we've been notably cheaper. I don't think we get back to those extremes that we saw in mid March. There's a decent chance, again on that on the knee jerk from the Bank of Canada's expected taper, that might be enough to drive that cross market spread up to 15 or something in that neighborhood, and then that's where you want to try and get along Canada. If you wanted to hedge that, say uh, on another part of the curve, there would. Would you suggest sort of tens or longs or something in between? I think, Fred, if you want to hedge that that five year trade, I think you do it in the long end. If you look at the the five thirties box, Canada against the U.S., the Canada curve is is relatively flat compared to the U.S. And I think there there's definitely room there. I think if you just look at five thirties Canada on its own, there's some room to steepen there. It's not quite at levels that I that I want to be steepening at right personally, but on a relative basis, we are not far from the lows. Canada, the U.S. on that box. So that, I think that's a good good place if you want to uh, hedge that uh, five-year exposure. So curve steepener in Canada versus a flattener in the U.S. Exactly. Another point about sort of you know the liftoff of rates and who goes first, you can have a situation where the Bank of Canada may, might go first, but, you know, but then we stay on hold at a low rate um, for a long time while we wait for the U.S. to sort of pick up and, and, you know, and, and sort of take the lead on, on raising rates. I think you got that exactly right. So that that's kind of where I, I lean. Canada can can go first just because of the the, the way our monetary policy is structured. Our, our target is different than the U.S., and so that that likely means Canada goes first. But that doesn't mean we're as aggressive as what the market is priced. I think I think the pace of hikes is the issue for me, rather than the hikes themselves, like the starting point for hikes. If the U.S. starts later than Canada, they're likely to be more aggressive in moving rates higher as they'll probably have to be, I think, at that point, especially if you consider the relative fiscal stimulus perspective, there's still more in the U.S. Even if the government comes with a big package, they follow through with that 70 to 100, there's still more coming in the U.S. So there's plenty of room for the U.S. to strengthen significantly from a macro perspective. And and so the longer the Fed waits, the more aggressive they'll likely have to be at the end of the day. And so I think that that's probably the biggest issue I have with market pricing right now. All right. That was great, Ben. Do you have any questions for me? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think I think we'll wrap it up there for this week. Fred, thanks for coming on. Thanks for hosting me, I guess. We'll see what happens next week. Big week coming up. Thanks again. That's right. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Have a good week. Thanks for listening to Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. I hope you'll join me again for another episode. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise it constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. 
Demo is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, we'll rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.